Holy Spirit, you are welcome here. We thank you for all that you do, that you fill us this morning, that you help us to come closer to you as we, as we worship you and as we hear your word. We thank you for the privilege we have of worshiping you. In Jesus' name, amen. You can be seated. It's a classic tale of redemption. It features a volatile coach and a former star player turned alcoholic, leading a small town basketball team in an improbable run to the state championship game. Coach Norman Dale encounters several hurdles along the path. A feisty teacher who tries to keep the best player from going out with the team. A town chock full of second-guessing fathers. And a group of undisciplined players. If you don't know, the movie is Hoosiers. What I would say is probably the greatest sports movie ever made. I pretty much know it by heart. And it's why I watch it over and over again, because every good story has certain elements. And we love a good story. What makes a good story is no secret. There are, in fact, seven basic elements to every successful story. The first, you need characters that people care about. Then you need a plot that has an engaging, realistic storyline. Number three, you need an effective setting where the story takes place a town, a time, a season. Then you need to pick the right person to tell the story, whether that's through the voice of one of the characters or even through a third person. You have to convey it in the right way. Then comes the style that the author behind the story. See, there's obviously some writers who are better than others. Some authors have distinctive styles that just make a story more compelling. Next comes the theme of the story, or, or themes, because there can be more than one. See, a theme is what stays with us long after we've finished the story. So after character, plot, setting, point of view, style, and theme, the finally, in, the, in a good story, you have to have effective literary devices. It can be such things as, as humor, or irony, or metaphor, or figures of speech. See, the best stories successfully bring all seven of these elements together in a way that stands the test of time and has people reading the story or watching the movie over and over again, generation after generation. There is one story, one story that has stood the test of time for over 3,000 years. It is in the best-selling, most-read collection of stories in all of human history, the Bible. And within the Bible, it's considered the best short story of them all. And it's simply titled Ruth. See, it's not just a great story, it's a true story. They can have an enormous amount of life lessons for us as we walk through it and we see what it has to tell us. 
Ruth is one of only two books in the Bible that's named after a woman, the other being Esther. And we have no idea who actually wrote the story of Ruth down in terms of what we have today in the Bible. Some may think it might have been the prophet Samuel, but we don't know because the author never self-identifies himself or herself. This apparently has been handed down orally until it was finally written in the form that we read in the Bible. Sometime during the kings of Israel, maybe in Solomon's reign. And today, we're going to start a series, and we're going to walk through the book of Ruth. And since every story has a beginning that sets the stage for everything else that follows, we're going to do the same. We're going to give you, I'm going to give you a very brief introduction. We're only going to go through five verses today, and we'll, we'll let that give us the setting. And then next time, we'll start tackling some of the drama found in the book of Ruth. So here's how it begins. In the days when the judges ruled in Israel, a severe famine came upon the land. So a man from Bethlehem in Judah left his home and went to live in the country of Moab, taking his wife and two sons with him. The man's name was Elimelech and his wife was Naomi. Their two sons were was Malon and Kilion. They were Ephrathites from Bethlehem in the land of Judah. And when they reached Moab, they settled there. Then Elimelech died, and Naomi was left with her two sons. The two sons married Moabite women. One married a woman named Orpah, and the other a woman named Ruth. But about ten years later, both Malon and Kilion died. This left Naomi alone, without her two sons or her husband. Now let's stop there and get everything that we can out of that first five verses. The first thing we're told is that the story is set in the days when the judges ruled Israel. Now it might as well have started, it was a dark and stormy night, because that's the interesting time in Israel's history. They had spent a long time in slavery in Egypt and then wandered in the wilderness for 40 years. Now they were in a new land where they were settlers for the first time in their life. No longer nomads, but citizens. But it wasn't a smooth transition. They had to adjust to a new national life and they didn't transition very well. Some have called Judges the, the account of the dark ages for the Israelites. And it's true that in this part of their history, we see a constant ritual abandonment of God. The heart of what went wrong during this period can be found in a single sentence that we, we, that we read repeatedly in the book chronicling that time. And it's just one line that the author keeps repeating over and over again as we read about what's going on. And this is that line. In those days, Israel had no king. Everyone did as they saw fit. In other words, I'm not going to answer to a God in heaven. 
I'm not going to care about other people. I'm going to do what I want to do and whatever I see fit. I am my own morality. I am my own truth. I am my own everything. So God, attempting to get them to turn around, to repent, would allow them to fall into the hands of other nations. And then, while under that oppression and persecution, when the people came to their senses and cried out to God, He would deliver them. God would raise up a leader that we called judges back then who would do just that. And then, once rescued, the Israelites would go back, right back to their old ways. They never learned the lesson. It's a sad, sick, depressing, ongoing cycle throughout that that time in history. In fact, in the book of Judges, we can count seven of these cycles. Seven times they committed apostasy and abandoned God. Seven times they fell into the hands of other nations. Seven times God delivers them when they come to their senses and they cry out to him. But why did it keep happening? Why was it so hard to settle into the land and to keep their heads on straight? You see, it's, it's something I think we all struggle with. They just struggled more famously than we do. They were inserted into a culture that was hostile to their faith. And instead of influencing the culture around them, they let the culture around them influence them. They began to worship false idols. They began to accept the the morals of the people of the land, their laws, their values, and their standards. They were supposed to possess and to lay claim on that land. But instead... They allowed the land and its people to possess and lay claim upon them. But So that's the setting, the the backdrop of Ruth, but there's a lot more in those first five verses. We're told that there was a famine in the land. And that's important to note, and it's not just because it sets the story for why Elimelech and Naomi and their sons move up and, and move to Moab. You see, famines in that time was commonly seen as a punishment for the sins of the people, often to to drive them to their knees to bring them back to God. Now, whether that's what's going on here or not, we don't know for certain, but we do know that the time of the judges was not exactly a time when the people of Israel were at their best. And since there wasn't a famine going on in Moab, And Moab wasn't that far away. It points to the strong possibility of what's going on between God and the people of Israel. This could have been intended as a divine wake-up call. So what happens in the time of the judges in the midst of a great famine in Israel? Well, let's read what, what happened. So a man from Bethlehem in Judah left his home and went to live in the country of Moab, taking his wife and two sons with him. That single line tells us a lot about the people in the story, especially Elimelech. Here was a man, an Israelite, living in Bethlehem, trying to escape the effects 
of a famine by fleeing to Moab. Now, on first glance, we wouldn't think there's anything wrong with that. Of course, you'd want to protect your family and go to where food is. But here's why that is noteworthy. Bethlehem was part of the promised land, the land that God promised to the Jewish people. They, and this was a Jewish family living there in the land that God had promised to bless, promised to have it overflow with milk and honey. Even the name of the city itself, Bethlehem, meant house of bread. So during a targeted, localized famine, the most common, the most expected response within the life and the heart of a faithful Jewish person would have been to sense that something had caused God's displeasure and that they should join with others in their community to collectively repent and to seek God's favor, to ask for forgiveness, to get right with God. See, that should have been the individual and the communal response. But Elimelech didn't do that either personally or join with others to do that communally. The last thing that would have been expected of any faithful Jew would have, or the, the least that any faithful Jew would have done would have been to just wait on God's faithfulness, to come through as it had time and time again. But abandon the promised land? abandon the promises that went with the promised land? This wasn't a time to panic. It was a time to have faith in God. But Elimelech didn't do that either. So there's no individual sense of repentance, no communal obligation to join with other, others and to seek God's favor, no faith that God would or could and the famine. He just flees. All of it. He flees all of it. His fellow Israelites, the promised land, and yes, even God. And to make matters worse, he goes to, the, to of all places, he goes to Moab. That's the last place any Jew would have ever gone. See, Moab was the enemy of Israel. Moabites were the descendants of a man named Lot and his incestuous union with his firstborn daughter. They were the Jews' enemy because of the way that they treated Israel while during that journey from Egypt to the Promised Land. Not only that, but during the time of the judges, Moab had actually invaded Israel and even ruled over them for 18 years. Did you get the picture of at least who Elimelech is, no loyalty to his fellow Jews, no loyalty to the promised land, no loyalty to God, no loyalty to the nation of Israel. Crisis comes, and in, in the minute it did, he abandons everything that he should have clung on to. He turns his back on God and runs toward the world. And you want to know something that's ironic? His name, Elimelech, literally means my God is king. And he runs from him. So what happens next? How did the attempt to flee it all go over? Not very good because the next thing we read is that he drops dead. 
We're told that Elimelech dies, leaving Naomi a widow with her two sons. The very thing he was trying to avoid happens to him the minute he gets there. And when you hear that, take pity on Naomi. Real pity, because being a widow in those times was serious, even under the best of circumstances. A widow in that culture was often seen in, in, as a position of disgrace. For a woman's worth was seen in her husband and through her children. Widows were immediately thrown into poverty and subject to abuse and oppression and exploitation. Many were forced into prostitution. Women in that day lived in a society where men provided everything, protection, support, and position. If that's taken away, then a woman would be potentially destitute. One of the reasons why you see so many references in the Bible to protect and to care for the widow. So here she was, alone in a foreign land, one that was hostile to the Israelites, and suddenly finding herself a widow in their midst. It's hard to imagine a more tragic turn of events for any woman, but at least she had the good fortune of having her two sons who could look after her. See, then the plot takes another turn because her sons marry and they marry Moabite women, which tells you something about her two sons, that the apples didn't fall all that far from the tree. For a Jewish man to purposefully, intentionally marry a Moabite woman was unheard of. Even if they were living there, which they shouldn't have been in the first place, to let you know just how serious this was. Listen to what Moses counsels the people of Israel before they enter the promised land. No Ammonite or Moabite or any of their descendants for ten generations may be admitted into the assembly of the Lord. These nations did not welcome you with food and water when you came out of Egypt. As long as you live, you must never promote the welfare or prosperity of the Ammonites or Moabites. Can you imagine what their spirit, what their attitude must have been? What it must have been like for for both sons to marry a woman from Moab. They were dooming their offspring for 10 generations of separation from their faith. So why did they do it? Maybe besides the fact that they were obviously turning their back on the Jewish traditions and on God, maybe they did it to fit in. Maybe they needed to ingratiate themselves with the people around them to land some work or to, or to get some food. They certainly didn't want to go back to Israel to find a, a wife, so this was just one more severing of any and all cultural and religious ties to their past. But then the story takes another turn, another disastrous turn, because death strikes again. 
After the sons marry, neither is able to conceive a child with their wife, and then both sons die right at the 10-year mark. They're married for 10 years and then died, but during those 10 years, no children were born to them. See, the point is that now all three women are completely alone. Women who were victims of their husband's willful disregard of God, particularly Naomi. See, when something like this happened to a woman like her, there were only three options. One would be to return home to her family, but at this point, she's, she's old enough that her parents are probably already dead. Second option would be remarriage. This would be an option for the daughters-in-law, but, but since Naomi was beyond childbearing years, she would not have been acceptable to any man during that day. Being able to produce a child, an heir, particularly a son, was everything in that culture. The third option would be trying to support herself through some kind of trade. But this was also unheard of during that time because women during that time didn't have trades. They weren't allowed to learn a trade. At her age, she doesn't even have the sad, tragic option of prostitution. She's an elderly Jewish woman living in Moab with no prospects and no one to care for her. She was a victim not only of death, but of life. She had nothing, was without hope, and everything had been taken away from her. No home, no husband, no sons. In a foreign land, widows with, with two widowed daughters-in-law. That's how the story begins. The stage is set for the drama to come right at the very beginning in just five verses. Everything is on the line for all three women. Will they find a way to survive? Or will they be ravaged and exploited? Will they stay together or will they go their separate ways? Where is Naomi's faith in all of this? And we feel sorry for her, but would we have if we met her then? What kind of person is she going to turn out to be? Was she the driving force? behind her husband's choices? Maybe even that of her son's? What, what's up with Ruth, who's barely even mentioned at this point in the story, and, and the women from Moab? Why is there an entire book in the Bible written about a woman from Moab? Just take this as the beginning of the story. And before I pray, I just, I want to, give you all an opportunity today. Maybe you find yourself in your life like Elimelech and their sons. Maybe you've run from God. Maybe you've turned your back on him and maybe you're far away and, and you think that you can do it all on your own. Or maybe you find yourself like Naomi, having everything being taken away from you and having no idea how you're going to survive. If you find yourself in either of those scenarios, know that God loves you. 
know that he will provide. All you have to do is have faith in him, turn to him, and he will take care of everything. Even when it seems like he won't, he will. So while I pray, if if you find yourself in one of those positions and you want to recommit your life to God, just raise your hand while I'm praying. No one's going to be seeing if you do or not, but just make that commitment today. Heavenly Father, Lord, this is the greatest short story ever. And we're just getting into it, and, and we see how part of the family has turned their back on you. They've run away from you. And maybe some of us here today or online, maybe we're in that exact scenario. Maybe we are running away. If that's us, help us to turn around and to accept your help, to accept your grace, to accept your love. Maybe some of us find ourselves in the position of Naomi where everything has been taken away from us. And we don't know what to do. Help us. Help us to again have faith in you, to accept your grace and your love because we know that you will provide for us. We praise you for this story. We praise you that you will always be there over and over again. Even if we are like the Israelites and we turn away from you seven times, seven times you will accept us back. We thank you for that. In your name. Amen.